You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, AK, and I've got some great things lined up for you on this episode. So stay tuned and let's begin. Summer, 1990. A teenage boy in trouble. An evil that only comes out at night. Only a straight-to-VHS movie can save him. From A. Kale, the author of, Beware the Night. Bad Dreams. A thrilling horror novel, now available on Amazon. Rated PG-13, for some thematic elements and mild violence. My guest on this episode is a New York Times best-selling author. He is the co-author with Stephen King of the best-selling novella, Gwendy's Button Box, and he is the founder-publisher of Cemetery Dance Magazine and the Cemetery Dance Publications book imprint. He is also the creator and writer of the online website Stephen King Revisited, a wonderful site for King fans. His latest book is the suspense novel Chasing the Boogeyman, out now. Please welcome Richard Chismore. So to start with, um, which is something that's always fascinating to me, uh, which is knowing which books made you fall in love with reading and writing as a kid. Oh, well, as a kid, um, I read, I, I grew up in a family of, of uh, with four older siblings. Um, so I was surrounded by books and both my mother and father were big readers. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, yeah, there were books all around the house and uh, regular trips to the library were a big deal. Um, so yeah, I was one of the fortunate ones to just be surrounded by books and you know, from a really early age, um, you know, reading was a big part of my life. As, as far as the specific titles, I mean, as a kid, as a really young kid, you know, all the Dr. Seuss books, of course, and then, you know, the Wizard of Oz and, and uh, anything I could get my hands on. And then as I grew up, I started just reading anything I could find, um, you know, the Alfred Hitchcock mystery and, and uh, anthologies and, uh, my father was a big paperback reader, so I read a lot of, you know, of the pulps early on, you know, John McDonald and some of the, uh, you know, crime writers. Um, but I read anything. I mean, my, you know, I would steal my sister's Sidney Sheldon books and read those, you know, when I was way too young to understand half of the things that were happening. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, John McDonald and uh... Uh, who you actually mention in uh, one of your stories, one one of uh, one of the stories that I enjoyed very much in the long in a uh, long December, mm-hmm. it was called uh, "Last Words," um, with the the grandfather I think left left the John McDonald the paperbacks for his uh, grandkids to find in the treasure hunt. So right, right, obviously, right. obviously, uh, you you, uh, you you're a fan. Yeah, a lot of good memories of those books. And, um, 
And uh, just, you know, my father, like I said, he was he was a big paperback reader. So he loved the paperback swap section in the library where you could bring in your books and put them on the shelf and take, you know, a, a like number of books away. And uh, he just tore through paperbacks like that. And um, I remember I, I wrote a story called Heroes that said I kind of grew up seeing my father's the top half of my father's face over a paperback book. Um and, and, and it's pretty accurate. You know, he would take my friends and, and, and me fishing and, uh, you know, out to the ball fields and uh, he would sit in the car or he'd sit out on, on the grass or a bench and read a book while we uh, did our thing. And then he would drive us home. So, yeah, definitely a lot of affection there. You're also the editor of a number of anthologies, um, including one of my favorites, which is uh, October Dreams. And uh, in layman's terms, which is a tribute to Richard Lehman, um, as well as the Shivers series. A lot of anthologies, which I didn't know about. I only knew your work as a, as a writer, uh, but I discovered your anthologies a bit later. It's interesting. And, uh, I was going to say it's usually the opposite. People found me through the editorial side of things, and then they find out, hey, the guy actually writes some too. <laughs> So I like I like that you did it the opposite way. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I think uh, it was uh, Widow's Point. I think the first time I uh, I came across your work, um, and then uh, there was there uh, there was the the Stephen King collaborations, which I actually haven't read because hmm. uh, I read just your solo work. And uh, but speaking of the of the anthologies. Uh, which are actually very, very um, enjoyable. As I said, uh, October Dreams is, is great. It has a great cover as well. Uh, so what do you enjoy most about editing anthologies? Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because it's, each one is different. And I know that sounds, you know, awfully cliche to say, but it's true. Um, now an anthology like October dreams was, a, was, a uh, boy, uh, um, I was going to say was a dream, <laughs> um, <laughs> pun, pun not intended, but it, it, uh, you know, I, what I like about anthologies are just seeing the, 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 even when it has a fairly focused theme, like I, I did a book called the Earth strikes back, which was ecological horror stories. And it, it was it was it's always a joy to see the, the wide range of stories that come in and, and how different authors interpret, um, you know, the, the theme that you uh, that you hand them to to write a story, you know, about. Um, so that's part of it. And then just working with a, a bunch of different writers. It, it, it's like working on an issue of the magazine, but much more focused. Um, and then the details, you know, how deciding how to position the stories, which story goes where in the book. <clears throat> you're, you're trying to design a specific reading experience for the reader. Um, so you're looking at, you know, length of stories, pacing of stories, uh, you know, um, the theme, obviously, the specific theme of each story and, and kind of how they play off each other. It's like it's I guess I, I am not musically inclined, but I, I assume it's fairly similar to how uh you know a musician assembles an album um or, or a, you know a dvd uh, uh or a cd rather you can you can tell i'm giving away my age here um but uh but yeah there's you know and and then you know a, a book like october dreams like i said where halloween has always been really close to my heart and uh you know my co-editor on that one bob morish and i we just we had a blast doing it you know just seeing the being able to mix 
our favorite reprints, you know, classic stories by Ray Bradbury and some of the others um, with brand new stories from such a great, you know, contributor list. And then my favorite in that book was, you know, just seeing all the, the really personal Halloween memories come in. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that one's at the top of my list, but yeah, anthologies are always uh, interesting and, and they're much more fun when you're the publisher and the editor. So, you know, you have complete control as opposed to, you've sold an anthology to a different publisher and then there's specific pressures that come in hand. Yeah. Um, I know I'm, I'm asking you about anthologies because <clears throat> um, as an avid reader and, uh, and of course you, uh, you can tell that I, I love horror, I love dark fantasy, but they are usually a very, you know they are a mixed bunch. You don't know when you when you when you're buying or or borrowing an anthology what you're gonna get because of course there are the big names usually. You can guarantee those, but uh, many of them depend on the on the editor. Right. So going into an anthology uh, for, for me personally, I usually, you know, there, there are the go-to guys like uh, Martin Greenberg. For example, you know the big the big names, right? And they are big names because they are they are reliable, you know. Yeah, they they have they've always delivered. So absolutely. Yeah. So uh, so I think uh, now you, to me you are one of those because uh, I've I've you know I've read some of your anthologies and none of them disappoint. None of them have have, have disappointed me so far. So well, so that's. You. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, because I, I rarely find someone who's a full-time writer who writes novels and short stories and uh, as dedicated as, as you are to, to writing, who's also an editor, maybe only the only person I can remember, uh, I'm also a big fan of his, uh, was the late, great uh, Charles Grant. What's, what I always felt interesting about anthologies is is and again I'm going to compare them to albums and musicians is you know if you're a musician and you put out an album or you put out a CD now or you put out the you know uh, uh, whatever they're called online um, and you know you have 12 or 10 12 14 songs on there and if two of them hit the album is considered a success and and this is one of the things that's always I've been amused by with anthologies is because if you put out an anthology and it has 20 stories and, and people hate 10 of those stories, you, you can't help but feel like a failure as the as the editor who assembled them. Um, it's just interesting because you have to have such a, a, a much higher batting average to uh, to succeed in anthologies than you do in, in, in um, albums. And I've always thought that was interesting. You know, you have one or two hits on an album and hey, it's a big success where if you only have one or two good stories in an anthology, you're in trouble. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because, you know, the, the short story form in general isn't as popular as it used to be. But so you, you have that going against you, you know, yes. with the reader, uh, with not not I don't know if it's the typical reader, but I think young readers, uh, the, the, you know, the younger generations aren't really used to the short story form. Um, people want, you know, to invest their time. And, and, uh, and, a, and a longer piece of work. And uh, I think Stephen King, uh, I'm a big fan of Stephen King's, but he's to blame for that, I think, because his, his, you know, his greatest novels, I think, 
or the the big you know huge uh, the big huge ones you know right right yeah especially in the dark fantasy horror genre he he introduced that i don't think there there was any writer before king who actually wrote you know b- these big lit- literary horror novels that are like the stand a thousand pages and and it and but anyway uh, i get i get your point about anthologies and uh, I have, you know, a love-hate relationship with with anthologies because uh, I've been burnt so many times. But uh, your work is is great, and I highly recommend it to listeners. Because, as you said, I think uh, I think younger readers and new readers, I think uh, maybe don't know about your editing work. Maybe most most of young readers now or new readers know you from uh, especially your latest novel, Chasing the Boogeyman. Right, uh, which I I liked very very much. I thought it was, you know, it was very very deserving of the hype, which is uh, which is unusual because uh, lately a lot of novels that have been hyped, uh, I have to say, have been very disappointing. In all across all genres, not just uh, not just the horror genre, but uh, your novel was very, very, you know, buzzed about. It was very, very hyped, but it it really deserves it. And I, I'm not saying that, you know, as a as a compliment or anything, but it it really is something special. And uh, I I started to get a bit bored with uh, with horror, to be honest. Right. The last maybe five years or so, but uh, chasing the boogeyman was really really a breath of fresh air just i've I've never read anything like it um it's just so heartfelt and uh, and scary of course but i think the warmth of the of of the of uh, of the voice of your voice and the way you approach the, the the story which isn't really you know it isn't really original, the idea of a serial killer in a small town. Oh, so Not at all. I mean, that's the funny thing I was going to say is, is it's really just an old-fashioned campfire story, um, you know, about a small town, which we've all heard a hundred times before. Um, so I, 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 I appreciate all the kind words you just said. And, and when you said I'd never read anything like it, you know, fortunately, I've heard that a lot. And I always kind of have to smile because of what I just said. You know, it's a very traditional, old-fashioned story. Um, but the, the way I chose to tell it was, and again, I, I don't even give myself the credit for that because it just happened. It, it, it felt like that was the only way I knew how to told, tell the story. If I, if I told Chasing the Boogeyman from the viewpoint of, a, a, of an imaginary narrator, um, I think it would have been a pretty uh, boring book and, and it would have been been there, done that for most readers. But uh, the fact that, that the story f- that I felt so strongly that it needed to be told from my viewpoint um back in time when <clears throat> when I was much younger and and <clears throat> much more uh bright-eyed about the whole world and and it, it became this loss of innocent story and, and I was able to include my friends and my family and and yeah I mean it, it it there's a lot of heart in the book which again you know I'd love to take credit for but it, again it just felt like that's the way the story needed to be told it needed to be told from this very intimate place and um I ended, you know, I ended up being a love letter to my family and friends in my hometown, which happened yeah. to have a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it shows, it shows, and it shows uh, this, this, 
you know, heartfelt vibe shows up in most of your work, which takes me to my next question, which is your style or, or as Stephen King calls it, your voice, uh, basically. Because um, a lot of writers of dark fantasy, horror, and speculative fiction, mainly of the old generation, seem to be influenced by the same writers, mainly King, uh, Peter Straub, uh, and maybe Ray Bradbury, to, to some extent, um, to name but a few. And as a result of that, uh, many of them, uh, I don't know how to put this, but they don't really have that unique of a voice, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, but you do have your own voice. It's it's very personal. And uh, and as I said, it's very heartfelt without being, uh, you know, mawkish. Uh, and, and it's also, many of your stories are, are very, very dark. But for the most part, they aren't nihilistic, uh, mm-hmm. which seems to be, I don't want to say popular but it seems to be you know a lot of writers now are very nihilistic especially when it comes to uh, to horror and dark fantasy and across all genres i think it's in the past 10 years or more uh, which is something i'm not really a fan of i'm not really a fan of nihilism i read you know novels that are very bleak and very dark and and i appreciate them and some of them i love Uh, for example i love the the long walk by stephen king which is you can't get any darker than that you cannot (laughs) yeah but uh but the overbearing nihilism of horror in the past 10 years see is, is missing from your work thankfully your work is again as i said some of your stories are very dark you know a father who learns something terrible about his dead son and right. stuff like that and discovering terrible secrets you know a mother discovers a terrible secret about her uh, i don't want to give it away but about one right. of her children right uh by you know snooping into their room and finding something terrible inside the shoebox and it's very very dark stuff uh but again there is always this warmth uh, and, and heartfelt vibe in your work, and it's a very singular voice. So what do you think helped you shape that voice when so many other writers of, of your generation and many generations in the genre of horror or dark fantasy or suspense, they don't really get there? You know, my two biggest influences are, are Stephen King and Ed Gorman. And uh, Stephen King, I read from a very early age, um, you know, Salem's Lot and went on from there. And, and he absolutely, without Stephen King, I would, I would not have started Cemetery Dance. I would have not have started writing in the, uh, in, in the, the horror, suspense, you know, crime, thriller genres. Um, there's just no question of that. I, you know, I, I like to tell people I grew up with a Stephen King paperback in my back pocket pretty much. And, and, it's, and it's accurate. Um, but as a writer, uh, in my twenties, particularly the, you know, my early twenties, um, when I was just starting to sell stories and send them out, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to reinvent the wheel. I was trying to write plot heavy stories that were twisty and, and, you know, uh, super original. And like I said, I was trying to reinvent that wheel instead of just telling good, honest stories. And, and despite the fact that, some of those stories sold um, along with pl- plenty of rejections. 
um, you know, they're not, they're not very good stories. And I look back at those and I think, well, it, it, it's really simple. It's a, it's a really easy task to, to pinpoint why. And it's just because they weren't honest. You know, I, I wasn't writing as myself. I was trying to write to sell. And, and I also discovered, you know, fairly early, you know, I'm, I'm not a real elaborate plotter. I'm just a storyteller. Um, and I do rely on that voice of mine. Um, and, and, but at some point in there, I discovered Ed Gorman and I started reading particularly his crime fiction and, uh, you know, and, 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 a, and a lot of his short fiction. Um, and, and what, what Ed taught me without trying to teach me was just that if, if you, if you wrote about things that were important to you, no matter how small they may seem in your own world, um, but you wrote about them honestly and, and with integrity and with heart. Um, and, and this might not work for all people, but it worked for me. And, and what I, what I found was that some of his stories weren't about a whole lot. You know, they were about a, a, a retired hitman sitting on a bench in front of a bus stop who has a conversation with a single mom who he, you know, finds out is on the run, you know, from her own trouble in her past. And, you know, a, an eight or nine page story like that with just sharp dialogue that, that poked you in the heart without kind of being really overly sentimental, but uh, just, just honesty and, 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 and warmth and heart um, mixed with the darkness. You know, I, I think of a story of his, like the ugly file about uh, the, the man who collected pictures of deformed children and, and uh, just how dark of a story that is, but the way he wrote it, 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 it it's, you know, it's, it's so hum, humane, I guess, is, is the word I'm stumbling and searching for. Um, but he taught me to, to, to write about things that were important to me, no matter how small they may seem, whether it was a, a moment in time, a person, a place, a memory. Um, and uh, it, it honestly, it changed everything for me because I started, it gave me the confidence to write those kind of stories. Before that, I felt like nobody wants to read a Richard Chismar story about you know, a, a woman standing at a phone booth holding the hand of, of a girl whose face is dirty and kind of, you know, nobody wants to hear that the story about that mom and child. Um, but once I saw Ed and how he, he was able to accomplish what he was with particularly his short stories, but also his novels, I, I just it gave me the confidence to try to just be honest and, and write about what mattered to me. And once that happened, that's when I started to find my voice. And that's when readers actually started responding to the stories. Um, so I always I, it's always a really easy thing for me to look back and say, Ed taught me that Ed taught me you can be plain spoken. You can just be a pure storyteller. Um, but as long as you're being honest and, and putting a little bit of heart and soul in there, um, you know, you're going to you're going to connect with some people. And uh, I, you know, I, I thanked him profusely over and over again. And typical Ed Gorman, he always kind of just shrugged it off and said, Rich, you know, you knew what you were doing from day one. And I point at those early stories and I say, no, sir, I did not. <laughs> so that's a long rambling answer. But I, I I have such warm feelings towards Ed, you know, not only as a friend, but, uh, you know, as, as an influence and, and as a literary father to me. Yeah, that's also uh, that's also what's so great about ebooks, I think, because for me, at least in the past ten years, uh, finding an Ed Gorman book uh, was hard 
especially the older titles, you know, from the 80s and the stuff he wrote under the Daniel Ransom name. So these, you know, ebook uh, reprints are just uh, heaven sent. So I think now his work is is, uh, is is widely available, which is which is great. Yeah, I agree. I uh, you know I'm looking at my shelves now, and Ed Gorman's all over it. But yeah, a lot of these books, if if you went out today and tried to buy them, your best bet would be uh, you know eBay or secondhand bookstore. So yeah, the ebooks are are definitely saving. Uh, you know, a lot of searching for, for people. And I, I try to sing Ed, Ed's praises as often as I can. So hopefully I've influenced a few readers to go out there and get them. Yeah. So what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a, a few short stories that I uh, have promised to people and I'm getting ready to start the next book, which uh, I, I can't really talk much about, but um, hopefully I'll have that finished by uh, early spring. And uh, yeah, next year should be interesting. Chase, uh, we have the third Gwendy book comes out with Stephen King, comes out in February and hardcover. Then it comes out in June pretty quickly in trade paperback. And uh, Chasing the Boogeyman comes out in July in trade paperback. And then I'll have a release in October, which is still a secret, but we should be announcing that sometime soon. So it'll be a busy year. And uh, and then hopefully 2023, we'll, we'll see, see the publication of the book that I'm about to start writing. I look forward to to all that, and uh, I look forward to starting uh, the trilogy you wrote with uh, with Stephen King. I know you wrote the the first book with him and the last book with him, but the middle book you wrote alone, right? I did. Yeah, he uh, he yeah. he was uh, my editor on that, along with Ed Schlesinger at Simon and Schuster. But uh, yeah, Ed was. Bu- I mean, uh, Steve was busy with with uh one of the holly gibney books i can't remember which one but i just remember that was his thing as he said i'm going to be busy with holly for the next few months but you go ahead and write it and i'll edit it um so i couldn't pass that that offer up but uh yeah you know we we wrote wendy's button box together and didn't really think there'd be more to the story but uh we uh we both kind of fell in love with her and kept coming back to it so i've just been nothing but a pleasure doing that and I'm I'm excited to to see what people think of the third one. Is it the final one? Um, it's the final in the trilogy. Let's just put it that way. But you know, just like, just like uh, you know, in his Dark Tower series, he ended up going back and writing uh, the Wind in the Keyhole. You know, I, I think there's the potential for some more Gwendy stories that uh, that take place in between books, that kind of thing. So. I think we just both have to, you know, with the second book, it was my idea. And I just emailed him and said, I, I just woke up with, I woke up and, and I feel like I know what Gwendy's been doing for the last 10 years. And I told him and he said, that's, that's terrific. You need to write that. And with the third one, he texted me one Sunday evening and said, I, I think I know what Gwendy's been doing. And, and that turned into the third book. So who knows when that, when it might happen again. That sounds great. And, uh, I really look forward to reading more of your books and especially your short stories because I love I love your short stories. As I said, I'm, I really enjoyed uh, A Long December and I uh, highly recommend it to listeners uh, who only know you from, from, from your novels and anthologies because uh, you only collected, I think, your short stories recently. The, 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 I think it was a bit hard to find. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a, 
before a long December, there was a good 10 year gap before. Uh, and, and I was writing, you know, I, I worked in the movie industry during a big chunk of that time and, and just wasn't writing as many short stories. But that's when I kind of came back to the fold and, uh, and and really fell in love with writing prose again. And uh, a long December assembling that kind of, you know, was was my reentry um, publication. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I, collecting those stories was was a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and, you know, I left out the ones I didn't consider good. So it was nice to be able to just put the, all what I thought, you know, the stories that I loved all in one place. Edgewood, Maryland, small working class town, friendly, peaceful, safe, until the summer of 1988. When terrified residents were stalked like prey and held hostage by a madman. The newspapers called him the Boogeyman. I was there. This is my story. What makes a book a hit? Is it the quality of the writing or is it the readability of the prose? Or is it the originality of the plot? How many books does one come across in a lifetime of reading that could be called truly original? And what does originality mean exactly? Some of the world's best-selling authors across history haven't been very original. Charles Dickens, for example, one of the most popular writers of his time and who remains popular to this day, with many TV and film adaptations still being made from his books and stories, didn't really come up with story ideas that were very original. He basically dealt with such time-worn story ideas as Rex to Riches, uh, The Cruelty of Man to His Fellow Man, The Plight of the Poor and the Orphaned, and The Horrors of the French Revolution. But it was his writing, uh, his style, and his point of view that made his books special made them relevant. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who along with Gaston Leroux and Edgar Allan Poe, basically invented the mystery detective genre, was an inventive, energetic writer and his plots were, for the most part, very original, unlike many of his contemporaries. He forayed into science fiction with The Lost World. He wrote some horror stories like The Mystery of Clumber and many other short stories like The Mommy Story, Lot 249, which has been adapted many times for film and television and is considered one of the most important and influential mommy stories ever written. 
He also ventured into fantasy with the Professor Challenger stories, including The Disintegration Machine and The Lost World, which I just mentioned. Modern best-selling authors don't really fare very well when it comes to originality. Stephen King, a brilliant storyteller and a good writer, is one of the most unoriginal authors to ever hit the bestseller lists. His plots are always undercooked, and he rarely brings anything new to the table when it comes to original ideas or original plots. No one could accuse Christine, Salem's Lot, Pet Cemetery, or it of being original. Their plots are tired and often ludicrous. But again, the way he deals with the story, the way he draws his characters, and the way he uses his captivating voice to tell the tale, make him one of the most popular writers in history. The same goes for J.K. Rowling, who borrows sometimes very heavily from every fantasy book ever written, especially Tolkien, Ursula Le Guin, and C.S. Lewis. And, of course, there is James Patterson, whose stories rarely showcase any originality. Yet Patterson's books have sold more than 300 million copies around the world, making him one of the most successful writers in history. So, it's obvious that originality isn't a prerequisite to success as a writer. But again, what is originality? One of the most spellbinding and thought-provoking books I've come across recently is The Second Coming by Richard Marsh. Richard Marsh was a very popular author of the Victorian era. His most famous book is The Beetle, which was so successful to the extent that it outsold Bram Stoker's Dracula at the time. And having read The Beetle before I read The Second Coming, I went into The Second Coming with very low expectations because The Beetle was a very underwhelming book. It's um, it's not very original. It, it's not really scary. And the writing was very tired. I couldn't get really invested in the characters or the, or the plot. And the book was very stagey and very, very dated. But... The plot of the second coming, the second book I read by Richard Marsh, well, the plot of the book is is also very unoriginal. It tells the story of the second coming of Jesus Christ, who suddenly appears in Victorian London. But what sets the book apart and makes it so fascinating and so surprising to me is 
the originality of thought or approach that Morse takes. Again, as I mentioned, Richard Morse is an adequate writer, but he is a searing thinker as he takes the concept of the second coming and uses it to discuss and debate many issues, including um, organized religion, socialism, and corruption. And he deals with these issues uh, with an intelligence and humanity that was startling to me. Again, here, his concept is unoriginal. But his treatment of that concept is very, very original. Another example is Henry James, whose novels of psychological drama and suspense all tread similar waters thematically, because James was always fascinated with class struggle, morality versus materialism, and the old versus the new. But the way he deals with these concepts, the way he reveals the inner workings of the minds and souls of his characters, their psychological struggles, their inner tortures, is always stunning. His take on his nondescript plots is always original in its approach, in its point of view. It's not the plots themselves that are original or new or fresh, but his take on them that made him such a groundbreaking writer, a genius, really. Look at what he did with the ghost story cliches and the turn of the screw taking the main elements of the gothic melodrama and the ghost story and producing what is arguably the most haunting and original ghost story ever written. A tale that Oscar Wilde called a most wonderful, lurid, poisonous little tale. So, originality is an ever-changing concept and it's a concept that is hard to pin down. Since any work of art is a reaction to other art, there can never be a story that is called truly original. Since any new story will always be a reaction to another story that so thrilled, angered, or moved the writer that he or she was driven to write a story of their own in response or in reaction to that story that moved them or thrilled them so much that they had to write one of their own. All a writer can do is bring his original point of view, his own distinctive attitude to the telling of the tale. And that's how great stories are created. I'd like to end this episode with a poem by Robert Louis Stevenson called Windy Nights. This version is read by Mike Kaufman and is taken from the LibriVox website and you can download this and many other poems, stories and novels 
from the site. Thanks for listening and please join me again on the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Whenever the moon and stars are set, whenever the wind is high, all night long in the dark and wet a man goes riding by. Late in the night when the fires are out, why does he gallop and gallop about? Whenever the trees are crying aloud and ships are tossed at sea, by on the highway low and loud, by at the gallop goes he. By at the gallop he goes and then, by he comes back at the gallop again. You've been listening to The Dark Fantastic Podcast. Flashes in the dark, tiny stories, vast dimensions. The wait. He waited for her in the usual place, just before sunrise. Would she come this time? This night? She had told him she wasn't there for him anymore. He knew it was true. But he still believed. And love after death. Text copyright Ahmed Khalifa 2021